now Amy just whispered to me before I got up I've, that she had a, a picture, a word, and I saw the fact that my chair is over there, so I thought, well, I'll go get my chair. Why don't you share that word, love? <laughs> she said she wouldn't, so I thought I'd spring it on her. Hurry along, love. <laughs> um, I was just... I, um, I don't know how it relates to what Johnny's going to say, so maybe we can... Um, but just as I was praying this morning... Um, and praying for us, um, I just saw um, the sort of front line um, and a ditch, and I saw lots of soldiers um, having sort of been pushed into a ditch, actually. It was lots of soldiers, kind of legs everywhere, like pushed into a ditch. And then I heard the words, um, wounded soldiers, um, and I haven't spent a ton of time praying on that, because it was just this morning. Um, but I do wonder whether, you know, there are some wounded soldiers here. And, um, yeah, and it's a time to come out and to be, and to, to fight again. Um, yeah. Thanks, love. <clears throat> Why don't we pray? Father, we believe that you're stirring the water, that you're at work, and we know that you're making all things new. And we just long to partner with you. Many of us, though, are wounded, and for whatever reason, we've stepped off the front line. I pray for healing today, that we might come back to where we belong, that we might step out of the boat, join you on the water, join you where you are. Holy Spirit, do all of that in a way that only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, I've uh, just taken up a hobby. A hobby. Oh, I don't know if it's a hobby, because I think hobbies typically are meant to enjoy um, and my hobby's running and I haven't yet enjoyed it so anyway I'm, we'll sit there is, that's me folks um, so I've taken up a hobby recently I've taken up running and then immediately I suppose or initially rather the, the reason I took up running was because you know I, I'm sort of tiptoeing I'd say towards sort of middle age and I I didn't want to sort of I didn't want to sort of ease my way into middle age too easily you know I just thought I want to I want to make sure I get there as start as I mean to go on uh, that was at least what was uh, in my mind and uh, and as it happens I've discovered almost completely by accident um, that there are benefits to running <laughs> of which I'd never considered and never expected and one of the benefits is very obvious, it's health benefit, right? Obviously, there's the physical health benefit, I expected that. But I found, actually, this new hobby has released so, much, so many other benefits into my life. I, I feel, uh, generally speaking, uh, on every level, I feel sort of emotionally, uh, my brain, my body, and my spirit just feel in a better place. I've also found uh, that running does something profound to tiredness. Um, when I'm most tired, you know, maybe I've eaten too much sugar or I've just not, not had enough sleep, whatever else it is, rather than sort of saying, oh, I need to go and have a nap, which is probably before children, what I might have done, uh, I'll say now, no, maybe I'll go for a run. 
And I found that actually going for a run increases my energy level. Having exercise, getting out there, doing stuff actually makes me more energetic. It's been quite a surprise to me. Now, I believe what's true in the physical is also true in the spiritual. It's true, I think, that uh, sometimes exercise, spiritual exercise, doing the stuff, if you like, is actually what enables uh, our health. I think sometimes, sometimes we can miss that. Sometimes we miss the idea that actually it's by joining in, it's by getting active in our faith, by actually practicing our faith. To use a phrase that's less often used today than perhaps before. It's by practicing our faith that actually we can step into health. Now we've used some stories already from this week how people in this congregation have practiced their faith in really sometimes simple but profound ways. And uh, when Joe and her, uh, her crew, well it was Will, <laughs> Will you are now part of Joe's crew, uh, were on the street, a number of the rest of our staff were there too. Uh, and I went uh, as well with, with Lib and Esther, two interns in our team, and we started doing the same thing. We were asking people on the street uh, whether, whether they had any need that we could pray for, and a number of people just engaged with us. And one particular a woman whose name I won't share in case she uh, comes here at some point, just, just said to us, she said, look, you know, actually, um, she said, I, nobody else knows this except for my husband so it's you my husband and it's me my husband and you three that now know this but I'm pregnant and two years ago I, I had delivered a baby at five months old and the baby didn't survive and I'm just desperate that this baby survives would you pray for me and I tell you that moment of prayer for her from a Sikh background uh, has no faith in in Christ but she's heard of Jesus and we were able to pray for her on the street. It was just a wonderful moment. But it, it might have been wonderful for her. I don't know. It was wonderful for us, though. Just a precious moment. And it energised me. That's the point. It energised me. It gave me a sense that there was work for me to do. There was work for me to do. John Wimber, who many of you all have heard of, uh, used to be asked by people who would come to his church, Pastor... I'll stop. I'll stop with the <laughs> I'll stop with the accent. I ju- they'd say, Pastor, I just want to be fed on the meat of the word. Teach me the Bible, Pastor. And he would say, The meat is on the street. The meat is on the street. It's about doing the stuff. Jesus did. We have this vision here to see the church on fire, the city alive, and we say that we believe our mission, our, the how of that for us is that as we encounter Jesus, we become more like him. And as we become more like him, we do the stuff he did. But that third piece is key. And I feel often in the church, we fail to address it. And today what I want to do is to address it. And hopefully as I address it, This is going to be a moment for broken and wounded soldiers to come back on the field of battle again. And that's what I hope the Holy Spirit's going to do as I speak about this. And what strikes me as I read the Gospels, and you'll have got this too if you've read through the Gospels, the stories, these biographies of Jesus. What strikes me is how quickly Jesus releases his ministry to his disciples. 
I'll give you one example, Matthew chapter 10. Uh, Jesus called the 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. In other words, the very things he'd been doing. Uh, I haven't got a slide for this, Jack, don't worry. Uh, uh, onward, verse five. These 12 Jesus, this is Matthew 10, if you're interested. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim the message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons freely received. Now freely give. In other words, Jesus gives his own job description, his own thing to the disciples. He entrusts it to them. What a strange thing to do. What a crazy thing to do. The Son of God entrusts his own ministry to simple, simple, broken, flawed human people like you and me. You see, the the work of followership is actually also work of leadership. We are called to follow Jesus, and as we're called to follow him, we're called to lead in his world. You know, at the beginning of the story of the Bible, Genesis, Adam and Eve are given a mandate, and that mandate is to rule and to reign to take leadership, to exhibit governance, to name animals, to bring order where previously there had been chaos, a little bit of gardening, if you like. Not the Sunday afternoon variety. That's what they're given to do. That's what disciples are given to do as well. We're called into sharing responsibility with Jesus. And I guess the question I want to ask today is how do we work out what Jesus wants of us? And then how do we do it? (laughs) Because it ain't easy. And it's particularly difficult if we've been wounded, if we've been hurt in the process. So that's what I'm going to do. And so if you've got a Bible, please reopen it. We provide them here. Uh, They're probably under your seat, or maybe you brought them with you, or you might have a smartphone or similar. And we're going to get into... Uh, The scripture that Josie read to us, which is Matthew chapter 14. Now, a little bit of context. Just before Jesus walks on the water in chapter 14, uh, he's coming really to this moment out of a deep, we think, sense of grief. Uh, he's, uh, he arrives here uh, and he's just seen or just heard news of John the Baptist, his cousin, having been beheaded. He must be full of questions and grief and sadness and sorrow. It's not the prime sort of uh, place that you'd want to be in, you know, really. Deep deep personal sadness must be just all around him. And and his response to John's death is to get alone with the Father. And uh, and out of that, he feeds the 5,000. So add add to grief, exhaustion. Now, look, the scriptures aren't clear on whether or not Jesus was an extrovert or an introvert. I'm sure somebody's done a study. But the fact is... And saying this as a borderline introvert, he's just been hanging out with 5,000 people. And even for an extrovert, that has to be exhausting, right? No? Some of you are like, no, that sounds like so much fun. So Jesus is, is, is emotionally shot, burned out. And in addition to that, he's exhausted because he's just been ministering day after day. 
uh, with all of these need-filled people. And so we pick up here uh, that he made the disciples get into the boat and go across to the other side. And he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Just a brief aside. If you're exhausted, do that. If you're spiritually burned out, if you're emotionally wrecked, if you're experiencing sickness and sadness and isolation, do that. Get alone with God. Get by yourself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. He'd been there for a while. He just needed to be with his Father. Even the second person of the Trinity, even Jesus the Son, needed time, especially Jesus the Son needed time with the Father. But he has to get rid of the disciples. He sends them on ahead. And they have an interesting time with it. It says, verse 24, the boat that they're in uh, was already a considerable distance from the land. Now in the uh, original Greek, it it, actually gives a distance. It's probably two to three miles. So they're offshore now by about two to three miles. They've done a fair bit of work and they're on the water. By this time, it says, battered by the waves, the boat was far from the land for the wind was against them. Despite their skill in boating, and remember, many of them were professionals at this, they're struggling. Now, just for a bit of insight, scriptural insight, uh, in case you maybe haven't remembered this or maybe haven't read it for a while, where we see water, usually in the scripture, is often a reference to chaos. There's chaos in the beginning of creation. The waters signify chaos uh, and, and the Spirit of God broods or uh, flows over the waters to bring order from chaos. You may remember the story of Jonah, the midst of chaos. He's thrown off the boat into the water. Water often speaks of chaos. Boats, however, often speak of moments where faith is about to be revealed. You know Noah, you remember that story? Noah asked to build a boat before there was even a sea to sail it on. A moment of God revealing faith. Jonah, a man who ran from God, who displayed faithlessness, eventually on the boat displaying some serious faith. So we're being given a clue here. The water and the boat, we're about to see an image and a picture of faith being revealed. And these disciples, it says they're a considerable distance from the land, buffeted, great word, underused. I challenge you today, use the word buffeted. Not buffet, buffeted. The battered by the waves. The boat battered by the waves was far from the land. Two to three miles, as I said. They're battling a storm and it begins just before sundown and it, Jesus arrives before dawn. So this is nine hours of boating. <laughs> nine hours of battling, nine hours of buffeting. It's not just Jesus that's tired. The disciples are fatigued as well. They're exhausted, they're wrung out, they are exhausted to the point of breaking. But they're not just fatigued, they're actually also fearful. Look at this with me. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. Not an unreasonable response to a man on a lake. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? I mean, you know, you maybe you've read this before and you sort of just domesticated it. This is the person walking on water, folks. You'd be terrified, particularly if you had some of the background they had. You know that in this era, it was believed that um, the evil spirits dwelt around uh, lakes. And in fact, that those who died in the waters, that their, their spirits were retained there. So probably they're thinking here, something demonic, something evil's happening. They've seen lots of the demonic up to this point in the Gospels. So maybe they're confused. They're certainly terrified. They say, it's a ghost. And they cry out in fear. And the word here for ghost, phantasma, from which we get the word fantasy, is only used once in the New Testament here. It is a ghost. Uh, And often in in Greek literature, it would be used to uh, refer to a dream appearance. But in the Old Testament, it tended to refer to some kind of demonic deception. They have all that background in the back of their minds and they're thinking, wow, something evil is happening. They can't make out Jesus' silhouette pre-dawn. There isn't a lot of light and they're exhausted and now they're terrified. What are they going to do? Exhaustion, fear. These are two of our greatest enemies as we seek to do the stuff Jesus did. You know, this isn't just, it's not even primarily a metaphor. This is a a real event, a real event in which the true identity of Jesus is being revealed. That's really what this is about. It's not about us, it's actually about him. It's actually about who he says he is, and we'll get to that in a minute. But it is also true and truly about the disciples. And therefore it's truly about us as well. And we spend so much of our lives in fear, don't we? And that's never been more true. You know, I've noticed uh, maybe in the last five to ten years with the sort of advent of 21, 21, how many hours in a day? 24 hour news cycles. Almost this sort of um, residual fear of people waiting for the next tragedy. You know, and, and you hear that noise, the BBC notification or whatever on your phone and you're just, what's next? What's happened? You know, I found myself doing this. I wake up in the morning and, uh, and, and what I found myself doing was checking the news to see if anything shocking had happened. Is that crazy? We live in a, a constant state of elevated anxiety. And actually in our culture, I think we witness uh, a sense of almost shared chronic anxiety. And it's become our new normal, Culturally. And we don't, when we come through the doors of a church, just turn that off. We bring all of that here. You know, the conversation you have with your co-worker where they share their pain, that frustration with you, you bring that here. Your own frustrations, your own anxieties, your own sadnesses and sorrows, you bring those here. Of course you do, that's what it means to be human. There's a guy called Edwin Friedman who wrote a book called The Failure of Nerve. It's one of the finest books I've read on leadership. He says that, I'm only only halfway through. So far it's been very good. And he talks about this notion of, particularly nations in the West, he talks about there being a chronic anxiety. And it leads to a paralysis, particularly around leadership, where leaders want more and more data, but they're less and less willing to make decisions. Less and less willing to take risks. A, A chronically anxious society, therefore, is a society in which people are paralyzed by fear and less and less able to risk. 
And I think that describes the state of the church in this nation today. Less and less confident in the gospel. Less and less able to take risks. Church with so much at stake, we cannot afford to stay there. We must rediscover risk taking. The disciples are afraid. We're often afraid. We're often fatigued. How many times in a week, when you ask someone else, hey, how are you doing? Do you hear the answer? I'm tired. How many, do you hear that? How many times do you give that answer? I mean, particularly in London, where we were there, we just honestly, it was, it was, it was almost pointless asking. Should we just get into the, the, you know, the guts of the conversation? Because I'm going to ask how you are. You're going to say you're tired. I'm going to say me too. And then we move on. <laughs> really? We live in this perpetual state of exhaustion. Hurried. Anxiously hurrying between things. We stack our diaries. Meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. With no time between. And we wonder why we're exhausted. Carl Jung, psychotherapist, said, uh, hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. And it's because of hurry that we live such exhausted lives, and that has a spiritual toll. And technology, which promises to make our lives easier, often actually does the reverse. We become a slave to our technologies. It doesn't create space, we just fill it by being enslaved to our technologies. Fatigue and fear. Now, in the midst of this, and maybe I've not described you, maybe actually the reverse is true of you. Praise God. Praise God. But many of us, and many of the people we're around and we're living with and mentioning to experience these two dominant realities. And the disciples do. And, and every disciple does at some point. What is the answer to these? What is the answer to people who are trying to face these realities? More than that, who are trying to follow and lead well in a world that's beset by these two dominant realities of fatigue and fear. What is the answer? Where is the hope? Well, the hope is in the face of Jesus. Look at what happens here. This is what we're to do. We're to take focus. The antidote to fatigue and fear is firstly found as we take focus on Jesus. Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. See, what Jesus does with the disciples here is to, is to change their perspective. They've been looking at the wind and the waves. They've been looking at themselves, their exhaustion, their fear. And Jesus says, look, just for a minute, would you take your eyes off yourself? Could you look at me? Take courage. It is I. Look at me. It is I. Don't be afraid. It is I. That, that phrase uh, in, in the original language, ego, amy, is the, is, the, uh, is, the, is the Greek. Ego, which means I. Amy means I am. I am, Jesus is saying. Now, the, oh, this is a, a bit of a convoluted one here, but stick with me if you can. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when God gives his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he says, Yahweh, I am. It is these words that he uses. Ego, Amy. Jesus is saying, take heart. It is I. Look at me. Not just a man walking on the water, but your God right before your face. Look at my face. As you look at my face, 
fear will drain from your body. As you focus on my face, your exhaustion will disappear and you'll receive everything you need. You will be refreshed in my identity, says Jesus. It's not actually about you at all. Boldness and courage doesn't come when we look at ourselves. That's, by the way, why self-help stuff is useless. We've never been so self-helped and so helpless. We don't need self-help, we need God help. We need Jesus' help, and as we look into his face, we find his help. We receive, as we get a new, uh, new focus, breeds this new connection. Psychologists are all over this at the moment, aren't they? This concept of connection. You know, it's so important, and you read this when you, if you're having a child, the importance of connection. You know, so we're told that, gosh, you need to look into your child's eyes. <laughs> These days, you have parents that are wandering around just like, <laughs> mustn't break eye contact with my child, otherwise I'll have to pay for psychotherapy later on. <laughs> Connection's so important, and Peter, particularly amongst the disciples, has this connection with Jesus here, in which his reality is completely reordered. He ceases to see the waves and the wind, and he sees Jesus. There's a, a focus around who Jesus is, but the focus too around what he says. Peter plays his part. Here we go. Lord, if it's you, verse 28, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. This conversation, this new connection opens up new possibility for Peter. Up to this point, he's been terrified. In this moment, he's enabled, he's empowered. This wounded warrior is given a pathway to walk on the water. If it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Not daring to do it without Jesus' authority, but if it's you, command me. Here Peter finds what he is to do. What are we to do? What are we to do? Well, what we're to do is the ministry of Jesus. Everyone who's a follower of Jesus is, is given, uh, given the task of joining Jesus in his work. Now, for every one of us, it's going to look different. No one will have the same job description entirely. There are people who are accountants. There are other people who are doctors and nurses. Some of them, some of us are, uh, we stay at home with our children uh, primarily as our, our role. There are others of us who um, uh, maybe are business people. Some of us are creators. You just... Some of us may not be in work at the moment. Just, just take, run the gamut. There's all sorts of different people. For every one of us, the nuance is going to look different of exactly what it means to do. But whatever it is, it's about looking into Jesus' face. It's about discovering more of his identity and through that, joining him in the chaos. Getting out of the boat, joining Jesus in the chaos and on the chaos. That's what Peter does. I read this in the week. It says this, If Jesus truly is the Lord and not an apparition, not a ghost, not a fantasy, there's no need for fear. Peter's focused faith in Jesus' true identity enables him to overcome his fear, to call out to him and to recognise that Jesus can enable Peter also to come to him on the water. There is not a person here who, uh, metaphorically speaking, I wouldn't advise it, down Brighton Beach, can't join Jesus on the water. There isn't a person here who, who's incapable or unable of sharing some of the stories that we heard this morning. There's nobody here. 
who can't experience God working through them in the midst of their lives, even in the midst of great chaos. And the beginning is to take focus. And then secondly, to take action. I love this line, it's so simple. So, Peter got down out of the boat. (laughs) As you do. There's no no detail there. Was there a ladder? Did he just sort of pop off the side? We're not given any detail. The bottom line is he was on the boat and then he's off it. He started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. There comes a point, there comes a point where it just has to be action. There has to be action. A stepping out, a stepping off, a taking responsibility. You know, where we say, I'm not going to leave it. I'm not going to leave it to someone else to do this. You know, there may be somebody in your workplace and then they just need help. And maybe they just, you've you just been thinking for a while, I, I, somebody, need, somebody needs to pray for them. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll, is there a prayer box here? I'll pop their name in a prayer box. Or I'll, I'll get my small group to pray for them. By the way, these are all good things to do. But there's also a moment of saying, can I pray for you? I, I don't know what you believe. I don't know if you're going to be offended by this and I'm a bit afraid, but do you mind if I pray for you? I believe that God wants, God loves you. Can I pray for you? It might be that simple. Maybe you did have a word for them or a sense of what God's doing in their lives and you might just say, look, this, this is how I preface almost everything I do in this area. This is going to sound weird, but I just wonder whether God wants to say this to you and this is what I saw and this is what he might be saying. Please, if that's just nonsense, can we still be friends? <laughs> there comes a point for taking action, walking to Jesus. Now, Peter isn't a perfect success, is he? He has a little dunk as well, a little dip. <laughs> His faith fails him for a moment. And it's not that he needs more faith. It's that he needs to keep focused on Jesus. It's that his faith is, is, is good faith, but it's ineffective faith. It's momentary. It's emotional faith. It's not uh, persistent yet. And he loses his faith when he loses focus on Jesus. It says that he's distracted by the winds and the waves. He needs to keep his eyes fixed. <clears throat> All right, let's land this. So what? How can we overcome the exhaustion and fear so prevalent in our culture within the church and even within our own lives. How can we get involved in this great adventure of the kingdom of God today in Nottingham? How can we see, how can we see Nottingham becoming a bit more like heaven? I think the answer is that we need to take a, a long, hard look into the face of Jesus. It's as we do that that we're given grace and energy, courage, in fact, heart, to look beyond our own selves and our own limitations and our own brokenness, our own wounds, our own sickness, our own sadness and sorrow. And we're enabled to come into the presence of God. And in the presence of God, we become bold. Since we focus on Jesus, we see his face, we enjoy his countenance. As we ask the question, where are you, Lord? Where can I join you? What are you saying to me? What are you doing? How can I follow you? And this new connection is the birthplace of courage. It's from this point that we're given grace to take action. 
and respond to the call of Jesus to follow him into the uncertain and chaotic place around us. It's this world that Jesus invites us to join him in. And we can certainly do it with his help. There may well be times that we falter. You may get a little bit wet. (laughs) Remember, Jesus is there to pick you up, as he does so with Peter. Jesus saves him, and he restores him to his side and to safety. And there's one final thing I want to say as I close. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This church is what we're contending for. That those who were in the boat, those who were elsewhere, would, would worship him. And to some degree, it depends on us. It begins with him. But he wants to partner with us to enable others to come into a deeper knowledge of him, to worship him as the Son of God. Why don't we stand as we close?